0: whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of christ eat and drink judgment on themselves that is why many among you are weak and ill and a number of you are falling asleep but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves we would not come under such judgment nevertheless when we are judged in this way by the lord We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world.
1: Well, in 2015, a small oil painting went up for auction in New Jersey. It was a little bit damaged. It didn't seem particularly remarkable and was expected to sell for about $500 to $800. The painting had cracks in its backing um, and was fairly unremarkable. It sat in its owner's basement for about for, what, a number of years, and when the owners who, who had it died, um, their adult children went through their old positions. They found the picture, and they decided to kind of sell it on. However, the, the sellers were in for a big surprise. When the painting went up for auction some Parisian art dealers kind of noticed it, and they recognized it to be one of the earliest paintings by the painter Rembrandt. It was created around 1625, when the painter was only 18. The Parisians bought the painting for a million dollars, and those sellers realized that in their possession, they'd had something so valuable, which had for so long just sat in their basement. Now, even prior to the sale, even the auction house had kind of not figured that this was a big deal. They'd received very little interest in the painting itself. A representative has said, we had absolutely no inquiries regarding this painting, nor did it stir any excitement at the preview. Sometimes some of the most precious things can be undervalued. And I suspect for many Christians here, um, the Lord's Supper may be such a thing. Now, for any of us who have regularly been to church, we'll be familiar with the Lord's Supper. We'll have taken it probably many times. It's also called communion. We'll be used to taking the bread and the wine or the, or the grape juice as it's passed around, eating and drinking the elements together. And yet, I wonder how much we truly value what is taking place. We may see it just as something we do because we're in church, something nice but not hugely significant. I wonder if we think it makes any difference if we take it or not. I wonder if we would miss it if it was gone. Well, today I want us to see that the Lord's Supper is a glorious gift, rich in meaning and spiritually nourishing to us as a church. We're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper later. And so before then, we're going to look at what the Bible says about it. And we're going to see that we haven't got just a bland tradition. We've got a Rembrandt. Like last week, um, we'll be dotting around a few passages, uh, but our base camp is going to be in 1 Corinthians 11 that we just read. So if you, ha- if you close your Bible, open it up again, we're going to be referring back to it. And there are going to be three things that we'll be covering today. Um, when I turn the clicker on. The background of the Lord's Supper, the meaning of the Lord's Supper and the partakers of the Lord's Supper. Okay, firstly, the background of the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper doesn't just appear in the Bible out of nowhere with kind of no relation to the past. It's not a new idea. In fact, the Lord's Supper is linked to a theme that crops up in the Bible again and again, and that is the theme of covenant. Now, as we saw last week, a covenant is a binding agreement, and that creates a relationship between two separate parties. So in the ancient world, um, covenants were often made between kings, sometimes a great king and a smaller king. So it may involve the great king promising to provide protection to the smaller king and his, um, and his subjects. And in turn, the smaller king would agree to honor the great king, to pay taxes, not to start a rebellion... So the agreement formed the basis of a covenant. And what would happen was, in order to confirm the covenant, in order to confirm that relationship, both parties would eat together. They would enjoy a covenant meal. Now, it wasn't just kings who made covenants. Ordinary people could too. But whatever the nature of the covenant, a covenant meal was always present. And we see various examples of this in the Old Testament. Here's one example when um, Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob, makes a covenant with his uncle Laban. Um, This is what it says in Genesis 31. So Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. So if you read Genesis, you'll see that um, Jacob doesn't have the most functional family, And Laban is a bit of a dodgy uncle, one could say. And they have a lot of tension throughout their time, but they finally decide to call a truce. After a lot of tension, they call a truce. They make a covenant not to harm each other based on a pillar that they set up, so they're not going to cross the pillar into each other's territory to hurt each other. And in order to confirm that covenant they make, what happens? They sit down to a covenant meal afterwards. So they have a meal. Now, there's something about eating together that creates a sense of community and fellowship, isn't there? So this past year, we ran an adopt a student campaign uh, for our undergrads, where a number of them have been linked with families in the church. And uh, throughout the year, the families have had them round to their homes and often given them a hot meal. And in the context of that meal, they've been able to chat and get to know each other Because the dinner table is a place of fellowship and hospitality. Now, there's something about the act of eating itself that kind of adds to relationship building, doesn't it? So you're, you're there, you're spending quality time with someone. There is space to talk to each other, but it's not that intense. You're not just like staring in each other's eyes. You're both doing the same task. There's also a sense of equality. So you're both there at the same level doing the same thing. And if one of you has prepared the meal, then that's a gesture of hospitality, isn't it? It took time to make that meal. It matters. Now, you tend to eat with people that you like, don't you, generally. You show hospitality to friends or family or to impress a date. You cook a meal. You certainly don't tend to eat with your enemies. And in the ancient world, this was particularly true. Meals were significant as only those who were at peace could eat with each other. So a covenant meal represented that peace and relationship. And this was particularly important as the covenant would bring together two parties who may have cause otherwise for tension in their relationship. Now this is true not just of relationships between people, but of the relationship between God and humanity. So, the Bible teaches that there is hostility between God and mankind. Now, we were created by God in love, given all we have by God. We live in His world, this is His creation. And we're made to know Him and relate to Him as our King, but we turn away from Him. We don't want to know Him, we don't want to live according to His vision for our lives. Instead, we want life on our terms. And we don't want a God telling us what to do. We reject the king and are essentially hostile towards him. And so we face his just judgment. Yet, God is not content leaving this relationship unreconciled, He doesn't want to leave it in hostility. And as we read the Bible, we see that God has been working throughout history to restore this relationship. Like any great lover, he is the one who takes the initiative, and he does so by making covenants with humanity. Now, a striking example of this is found in Exodus, where God makes a covenant with the people of Israel at a mountain called Sinai. Now, it's a dramatic moment. Um, God has kind of manifested his presence at the top of this mountain. There is thunder and lightning. The mountain is shaking. The people are petrified. And yet this is God come down to make a relationship with his people. He's there to bless them. Now, God gives them the Ten Commandments, which is his law. And it's kind of like a marriage ceremony. So God promises to be a good husband to Israel and look after them and bless them. And the people pledge to be a faithful bride, to stay faithful to him and keep his laws. And then we see what happens afterwards this is remarkable look at these verses so Moses and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up the mountain and saw the God of Israel under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire as bright blue as the sky but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites they saw God and they ate and drank now there is so much in that paragraph that demands attention and is striking. The manifestation of God on a bright sapphire platform. The fact that Israel's leaders are able to go up and see God in some way. I mean, that's incredible. But that's not even the most surprising thing. The most surprising thing in this paragraph is not just that they saw God, but that they saw God and didn't die. Sinful humans they are in the presence of God, who is shining in his glory, perfectly pure, brighter than the sun, his glory is there, normally they would have been consumed on the spot. And yet they don't die. Why is that? Because God has just made a covenant with them. And to show that there is a relationship, that there is peace between God and the nation, its representatives, representatives have this Rare opportunity to meet with God and eat and drink in his presence. They have a covenant meal. A covenant meal. So that was the old covenant. Now if you fast forward a thousand years or so, Jesus is with his disciples enjoying the Passover, which was another kind of covenant meal. And it's at the Passover that Jesus institutes what we know as the Lord's Supper. He breaks bread hands it out he passes around the cup of wine and he says look down with me verse 25 um in 1 corinthians 11 he says this this cup is the new covenant in my blood so it's food and drink related to a new covenant the lord's supper is the new covenant meal for the church Okay, well, we've seen the history of covenants and meals, but what is the Lord's Supper's specific meaning, and why should we care? Well, let's look at the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And first of all, the Lord's Supper, we need to see, is a proclamation of the gospel. So in the the new covenant, our relationship with God is finally and truly restored for anyone who trusts in Jesus. And this covenant meal proclaims the gospel, how that relationship was achieved. So look down with me at verse 24 to 26. And when he had given thanks, he, Jesus, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we take the Lord's Supper, eating bread and drinking wine or, or grape juice, however, however it's done, we have a visual representation of Jesus' death on the cross, the fearsome experience that Jesus had to go through in order to pay for our sins. Now, this is a representation and a reminder So the Bible doesn't say that the Lord's Supper is a a re-sacrifice of Jesus, and it doesn't say that anything mystical happens to the physical bread and wine that we consume. Rather, they serve as a picture that proclaims Jesus' death. So the bread and wine are like a visual megaphone that says at high volume, Jesus died, the Son of God was crucified for you. So, we take the bread and we take the wine, Jesus says, in remembrance of Him. And as we take it, we remember the cost of salvation, the cost of being restored into right relationship with God. So, a few weeks ago, a Manchester steakhouse tweeted regarding a customer who was accidentally served a four and a half thousand pound bottle of wine. And the tweet said to the customer, We hope you enjoyed your evening. And it's also addressed the member of staff who had given the bottle by mistake. And it said this, chin up, one-off mistakes happen, we love you anyway. So the restaurant management forgave that poor staff member, much to their relief, I'm sure. But note that in order to do this, the restaurant had to take a hit on that money. It essentially cost the restaurant four and a half thousand pounds to cover what had been done. What did it cost God to forgive you? When we take the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that our sin was so serious, it cost nothing less than the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. We can't pay for our sins with money. We can't pay for them by doing a few good deeds that we hope will kind of balance off the bad ones we've done. No, no, no. It's more desperate than that. Our state is so desperate that God incarnate in the flesh had to come and die in our place. Now, that's humbling, isn't it? And so in this way, taking the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread and the wine, it gives us pause for reflection. However, because it proclaims the gospel, it isn't all solemn. Now remember, this is a covenant meal that represents peace and relationship. And so, as we take the bread and wine, we feel the affirmation of Jesus' love for us. The covenant meal is a symbol of hospitality, and Jesus is the ultimate host. He has prepared the dinner table for us as a sign of his welcome. Now, there is great joy in that, friends, is great joy. Jesus has given us the Lord's Supper so we can say to you, Christian, come and eat at my table. We are in relationship through covenant. I love you and I've bound myself to you. And isn't he kind that he would do this continually, time after time. The Lord's Supper isn't just a once-only thing. We do it continually as a church family. It's as if Jesus knows that we need continually reassuring Christian friend, if you feel bogged down by your sins right now, if you're struggling with assurance, the Lord's Supper is for you. Come in repentance and faith again and be blessed by this meal. So it proclaims the gospel. Secondly, it's a symbol of our unity. So throughout this passage in Corinthians, it's clear that Paul sees the Lord's Supper as something to be taken by the whole church together. So verse 18 If you look down, he says, when you come together as a church. In verse 20, when you come together. And then, if you flick a page earlier to chapter 10, look at these verses in 16 and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So do you see the link there between the bread and the church? So just as we share in one loaf of bread during the Lord's Supper, we are one body, the church. So it represents unity. The Bible's vision for the Lord's Supper is that it is to be taken by the whole church, the whole church family. It's a family meal. Now we all know that for a family meal to work, everyone needs to be present don't they last christmas for the first time in a few years my family was able to have christmas dinner with us all together now it's difficult it's been difficult to do that in previous years because um, me and my family kind of live all over the country me and my parents were living in the north although in different parts of the north my sister was on the south coast and because uh, my sister sarah does quite intense shift work and the location was quite remote it was difficult to get everyone together at christmas So for a while it was just me and my parents and wasn't always able to see my sister and her family on Christmas Day. But last year we all managed to get into the same location and we had dinner together. My parents, me, my sister, her husband and my little niece, who's adorable by the way. And it was great, it was great. And it felt right for us to all be together for Christmas dinner. We could mark this important occasion as a family. And it's the same with the church family and the Lord's Supper to mark such an important occasion, we should be together and we should take it together. If the Lord Jesus graciously invites us to his table, then we should come as a family. It wouldn't be right if I just take the Lord's Supper by myself, or just even with a subset of the church. Can you imagine if at last Christmas, when I was with the company of my family, I just said to my dad, come on, dad, let's just have Christmas dinner by by ourselves. Let's just do our own thing. We'll leave mom and my sister's family to it. No, that wouldn't be right, would it? In the same way, we should take the Lord's Supper together as a church. And when we do so, it symbolizes our unity. When you take the bread and you take the cup, you look around and you see that Christian brother, that Christian sister also doing the same. And it underlines the fact that we are together together that we belong to each other. You see, in the covenant, Jesus has bound himself to us, but we have also been bound to each other. So when you take the Lord's Supper, you are saying, I belong to Jesus, but you're also saying, I belong to this church. So it symbolizes our unity. And it's also a pointer to the future. Now we see this in verse 26, if you look down. 1 Corinthians 11, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus adds these words in Matthew's Gospel, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, it points beyond itself, when we will take part shortly we won't just be looking back at the cross we won't just be looking around at each other but we'll be looking forward to the future now you can judge a party by the quality of its food and the quality of its company if you get an invite to a dinner party and all you get served is a microwave meal with a bag of watsits you're probably not going to be impressed or maybe you will i don't know but the company matters as well not just the food i don't know if you've ever had the experience of going to a wedding where you didn't know that many people maybe you only knew one of the happy couple now the pivotal time at a wedding like that is dinner right because you get plonked on a table often with other people who don't know that many other people either and you're kind of all sat and the idea is that you can kind of meet each other now, it doesn't matter how good the food is at that wedding, if you struggle to connect with the people on your table, if you can't have a good chat, if you can't have a laugh and share stories and learn about each other, if the company is dull, then it doesn't matter how great the three-course meal is that, the, that you've got at the wedding, you just want to get out of there, don't you? You just want to get out of there. Well, the Lord's Supper looks forward to a future banquet where both the food and the company is amazing. So Jesus will come back, he will fully establish his kingdom, and he will hold a heavenly feast. When we take the Lord's Supper, we just have a a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. It, It might seem a little bit meager, but yet it points forward to this huge, epic banquet with all the trimmings, that we will enjoy together. But even better than the food will be the company. For there we will feast with each other, all the saints, um, all the Christians throughout history, perfect and glorified, no sin. But more than that, we will feast with Jesus. He will eat and drink with us in his kingdom. You will be able to see face to face the Son of God in all his beauty. And glory, the one who loved you despite your sin, the one who chose to come to earth and bleed and die for you on the cross. You will see him and you will eat and drink with him in the new creation, free from sin and tears. Isn't that amazing? And so the bread and wine anticipate this. Every time we take those elements, we are one Lord's Supper closer to the coming of Jesus. Okay, well, we've seen the background and the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Finally, the partakers of the Lord's Supper. So who is the Lord's Supper open to? Who can partake of this wonderful covenant meal of peace that's offered to us by Jesus? Well, firstly and primarily is for Christians. It goes without saying that a covenant meal is for those who are in the covenant. For those who are in relationship with God through Jesus. So you need to to, to partake, you need to be someone who has put your trust in Jesus for your salvation. And ideally, it is also for Christians who have been baptized. So we saw last week that baptism um, is the other sign of being in this new covenant. And the two signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are connected, but in slightly different ways. So baptism is linked with becoming a Christian. So in the New Testament, those who become Christians, they then get baptized. So it occurs normally at the beginning of your Christian life as a one-off. Signifies entry into the covenant. But the Lord's Supper, as we've seen, isn't a one-off. Jesus says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup... So it's to be repeated. So baptism is connected with entry into the covenant, whereas the Lord's Supper is connected with continuing in the covenant after you've entered. So logically, you enter the covenant and are baptized, and then you take the Lord's Supper. So it is for baptized Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, therefore, we would ask you to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. And we don't want you to proclaim something that you don't believe in. However, as you observe, we would encourage you to think about what you are seeing. Think about what you've heard this morning. Forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with the God who made you. These things are offered to you today. Even now, the arms of Jesus are open wide for anyone. And perhaps this is the day that you would enter into this glorious covenant. And maybe next time we have the Lord's Supper, you will join in too. So it's for Christians, ideally baptized. But even then, there are still more constraints on who can take the Lord's Supper. Look down with me at verse 27 to 28. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So, here Paul makes it crystal clear that a Christian should never thoughtlessly just take the bread and the wine. It's not just something we do because we're in church, it's not just a tradition that we get involved with because we're here. No, no. The Lord's Supper is indeed a welcome and a blessing from Jesus, but we should never take it lightly. Paul says that it is possible to take it in an unworthy manner. And this is serious business. Those who do so, it says, will be guilty of sinning against God. And such people, it says in verse 29, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So what does it mean to take it in an unworthy manner? Well, as we read the chapter in the context of Paul writing to the Corinthians, we see that when they gathered for the Lord's Supper... It was chaos. Look at verse 20 to 21. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, we don't know exactly all the details behind this verse and what was happening in the church. But I think we can safely say that if your church service involves some people stuffing their faces where others go hungry and some other people getting wasted on the wine. You're doing it wrong. Something has gone awry. But the core of the issue here for Paul seems to be disunity. When Paul begins this section, he mentions this. Look at verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So these issues with drunkenness and eating whilst others go hungry come out of division. There seem to be factions or cliques in the church, and there's hostility between the two cliques, or however many there were, and it it led to behavior that was inconsiderate. Now, of course, that completely undermines the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? We've seen that it signifies unity. It's about one family coming together, bound to each other, if that's the case, you can't take the Lord's Supper whilst acting in a way that promotes disunity. It's complete contradiction. So this seems to be the core thing about what it means to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Therefore, the warning is clear for us. We must not do this either. Examine yourselves, Paul says. Now, we're not likely to get drunk or overeat this morning, but how are your relationships with other Christians? Have you got a broken relationship with another Christian that hasn't been resolved? Is there hostility there? Has reconciliation not taken place? Is there still tension? Then please, don't take the bread and wine this morning. It is better for you that you don't. Go and make peace with that person, and then come back next time. And it's not just to do with relationships. We should also examine ourselves more generally. See, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal where we come uh, remembering the gospel. And we are aware of the sin in our lives, and we turn from that sin. We come in repentance. So, if there is sin in your life that you have no intention of repenting of, and you know it, then you shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper either. However, if you know that you are a sinner, if you're fighting your sin and you want to turn away from it, however weak you may feel, you are welcome at the Lord's Supper. If you know you need more grace, if you're struggling um, and lacking in assurance, come and take the bread and wine. May it strengthen you as you receive the welcome of Jesus. May you be blessed as you remember his death for you the unity of our church and the brothers and sisters here and that future promise of that heavenly banquet. So we've seen the background of the Lord's Supper, the meaning of the Lord's Supper and we've looked at who can partake in the Lord's Supper. Christian friends, we've got a Rembrandt. A covenant meal that Jesus has given us as a sign of the peace that we have with him and with each other. So may it nourish our souls as we take it in a moment. Shall I pray for us?